Recovery Elevator, episode 461. And I really thought that I could figure it out. I thought that it was just some perfect strategy I had to learn or some method. And if I could just figure out what that was, I'd be fine. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Jill. She's 33 years old from Lexington, Massachusetts, and took her last drink on November 19th, 2019. Great job, Jill. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do an incredible job, and thank you for your time. I've got an update from Ryan H. from episode 457, or four episodes ago. He says, Yo, Paul, I'm going on two weeks right now, and I'm definitely starting to notice a difference in my mood, digestive issues, and weight. Yeah, great job, Ryan. Keep it up, and thank you for the update. Listeners, today is going to be a good day. In fact, it has already been a good day. Now, registration for our intensive dry January course, Restore, is now open. Let's get 2024 started off right. So it's time to get your alcohol-free connect on and say adios to the booze. The most common issue I hear is that people don't have a network of others who don't drink or all their friends drink. Well, this Restore course is going to solve that issue. On top of that, you're going to learn a ton about alcohol, alcohol addiction, and how to beat it. We're meeting 14 times in January, and our first session is January 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern. There's a link in the show notes for information on how to sign up. I hope to see you guys there. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. December is a season of gift giving. I'm curious, how many of you buy yourselves a gift? When I entered the arena of recovery, I was made aware that I needed to prioritize my well-being and... Honestly, that stuck. I started putting myself first and I noticed how, as I felt better, that overflowed into my relationships. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. In the season of giving, Give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Elevator. Okay, let's get started. There are two Instagram accounts that I want to share with you that will help you on your sobriety journey. There are links in the show notes for these accounts. And if you don't have Instagram, no worries, I get it. But keep listening, you'll still get the benefits. The first one is called Drop the Bottle. As you can infer from the name, it's about sobriety and ditching the booze. I saw a parody video on the Drop the Bottle page where an alien comes to planet Earth and starts asking questions about alcohol. Here, let me play the audio for you. Hang on, you drink what is essentially poison every weekend? Yeah, and during the week, even if we have work the next day. Uh Uh-huh, and you do this at night time? Or in the afternoon? Or in the morning? At Christmas? And how long do you do it for? Until we're sick everywhere. But you get a kebab first to make it chunky. I mean, does it give you any special powers? Yeah, it makes you think that you're good at dancing. And does this drinking make you happy? 
for a bit, and then you feel like death for two days and then have a baseline of sadness until you drink again. <laughs> well, at least you don't pay for it, I suppose. Really? Right, well, I'm leaving. You humans are weird. Solid gold. Again, this is a parody video from the Instagram account, Drop the Bottle. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes the biggest heap of bullshit is in plain sight for everyone to see. Alcohol is a potent poison that for some reason, if you don't drink it, you are perceived as the strange one. But hey, I do want to recognize the good in this world. Goat yoga is a real thing and Third Eye Blind is still touring. So you have to take the yin with the yang. And as long as you recognize the yin, but live in the yang, you're going to be just fine. All right. My favorite part of this video is when the alien asks, does the drinking make you happy? The human responds with, for a bit, then you feel like death for two days and have a baseline of sadness until you drink again. When phrased this way, and it's the more accurate way, drinking is ridiculous. It's asinine. It makes no sense. Yet this shows the power of culture and stigma, but this culture and stigma are changing by the day and you, the listener, are a big part of it. Thank goodness humans have the ability for self-deprecating humor because it's a simple, goofy video like this that shines the light on the level 10 bullshit that we've been fed with alcohol. Okay, the next Instagram account I recommend you follow is Aladdin. Check the link in the show notes because the spelling is a bit strange. It's basically a.l.a.d.d.i.n. Okay, so this man claims to be the only Batman in Zanzibar, Africa. And all he does is post videos of himself jumping into the ocean while wearing a Batman suit. Some of these jumps are quite impressive as he jumps off a 15-foot rock wall over a patch of dry sand and then lands in about 25 inches of water. Now, this account has nothing to do with sobriety or does it have everything to do with sobriety? Every time I watch this guy launch himself into the Indian Ocean, wearing a full-on Batman costume, oftentimes in front of large local crowds, it gives me permission to be my authentic self. It's almost the same universal law as the smile, which we covered a few weeks ago in episode 459. So when the Batman of Zanzibar shares his creative art with the world, it gives others permission to do the same. When I see his videos, I say to myself, you know what, Paul? It's about time we make those Ninja Turtle costumes for our goats. His Batman videos encourage me to continue to build a life where alcohol is no longer needed. It shows me that love and creativity is what I want to explore, learn, and teach. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the intro today. I had a good time putting it together. Now, after the interview with Jill, I'm gonna share a way to say no to a drink. And it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. And now a word from Athletic Greens before we hear from Jill. Thank you to our newest partner, Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens daily. I gave AG1 a try because I noticed that I was taking multiple supplements a day and I was searching for something that took care of my immune system as well as gut health all in one. I'm training for another marathon and I take AG1 in the morning before getting my run in and it makes me feel like I'm ready to conquer the day. I'm a busy working mom and it gives me such peace of mind knowing that I'm helping my body by providing it with all of the nutrients that it needs in a day. I've been taking AG1 for two months now and I have noticed how good I feel throughout the day and how I don't immediately need caffeine upon waking up. All you have to do is mix one scoop of AG1 with water and voila, your cells will be grateful. 
One daily serving of AG1 contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash recovery. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash recovery. Check it out. Jill, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And thanks for having me. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking, Jill. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to share your story with the audience, learn more about you, how you ditched the booze. How are you feeling about the interview? Excited. I actually don't really share my story that much. Um, I get asked to talk more about sciencey stuff. So it's a little nerve wracking, but also refreshing when I can share. Yeah. All right. Let's do this. Let's get right into it. Jill, when was your last drink? November 9th, 2019. So no. just about four years. Yeah. Congratulations on that. I'm always curious with people who quit just a couple months before the pandemic hit. You know, what was that like when the pandemic hit, when you had three, four months of sobriety under your belt? I actually thought it was awesome. And I know that people, like most people don't think that. And I'm, First of all, I'm so grateful that I stopped before the pandemic because I feel like I would have went harder in the pandemic because I was working in a lab and I remember they told us like, kill all your cells, put everything that you're working on in the freezer, like the minus 80 degree freezer for long-term storage and we're going home, but it's just going to be two weeks and then we'll be back in the lab. And as a lab worker... Um, I had to be there in person, so I didn't have much to do at home. So I would have just drank all the time. But instead, because I was sober, I cleaned my entire house and like purged everything in my pantry and under under the kitchen sink. And I went on like eight mile walks every day. It was a good mental health period for me because my workload was so light for those first few months. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Jill. All right. And before we get further into your story, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, Jill, what do you like to do for fun? I live right outside of Boston. Um, I am 33 and um, I have a husband and a cat. That's my family. Uh, what I like to do for fun, I'm a huge gamer. That's probably my number one hobby is video games and concerts on the rare occasion that I go to one, but those are, and traveling. So those are my three. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. What? Uh, tell me a little bit about the gaming or the video games. What games do you like to play? Are they online or the multiplayer? I started with the multiplayer online ones. Um, so I started gaming when I was like 11 years old. And it was because I was bullied in school and I didn't have any friends, <laughs> just, to, just to say it honestly. Um, and video games were kind of like my escape. And I had online friends that I would play the games with. So I played all the like Quake and Doom and those really intense games that probably an 11-year-old shouldn't be playing. And now I like to play more like role-playing games like Assassin's Creed and Cyberpunk, like the the big titles that come out and things like that. But 
now it's my stress relief. Um, so games always have a special place in my heart because they really supported me when I was being bullied. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And you said you do science stuff. I know you're, you're a lab teacher or a college professor with science. Do I have that right? Yeah. Um, I teach chemistry and I teach chem courses and labs. Um, and I sometimes teach physics labs as well, but yeah, I teach at a college in Boston. Gotcha. And listeners, if you recognize Jill's voice, it's because we did a collaboration maybe four or five months ago. And and Jill is the host of the Sober Powered Podcast. And and we'll save that to the end of how you got into that and how that's been uh, beneficial on your own recovery journey. But on that episode, we had you, we had me, we had Laura Cathart Robbins, um, who is an author of a book, I believe, called Stash. And then also Eric from the One You Feed podcast. It was a fantastic collaboration and Jill was the one who set that up. So I wanted to say thank you for connecting me with those two and for getting the four of us together. That was a lot of fun. It was a great episode. That was fun. I feel like we had a really good flow. It was a great fit of people. Sure. The flow was good, even though I recall a crazy <laughs> hailstorm coming in Montana and I got booted off like three times and I would join back in Zoom and like, what do you think, Paul? I'm like, all right, here we go. I'm back. Yeah. Okay. We're all doing our best. Well, let's do what we came here to do, Jill. I want to hear about your story into addiction, out of addiction. I'm going to let you take it from wherever you want to start. Let's do it. So I started drinking late. I think that's probably the most important um, place to start with. I did not drink in high school because of all the bullying. I just didn't have opportunity. That was that was the main reason. I had no opportunity because I wasn't invited to things where there was alcohol, which now I'm very thankful for. But then when I went to college after eight years of bullying, I I didn't put myself out there for friendships or social things. So I just also didn't drink. It was just, why would I? I'm not going to start drinking randomly by myself when I'm underage. And I wouldn't start drinking until grad school. And that is because everybody drank except me. And I really felt that for the first time. In college, I was really secure. I would go on dates and not drink. And I'd eventually made friends and would hang out with them and not drink. And like, I just didn't care. It's, it was whatever. But in grad school, I really felt like I am the only one. The professors are drinking with us. We're having parties in the school. And if I don't do this too, no one's going to like me and I'm going to go back to where I was before. So I felt pressure to start and I just started ordering what other people would get because I didn't know how to drink. I didn't even know like, what do I get? And that first time that I got a buzz on, it took a few times, but the first time I got a proper buzz, I was like, wow. I know why everybody's been doing this this whole time. Like, this makes so much sense to me. How could I not have discovered this earlier? And then it was over. Um, I just wanted to do it all the time. And I had opportunity to do it every day because we would, um, I went to school for science. So we would work in the lab all day and then go to the bar afterwards. And people would drink at the school, if they were stressed, that was the norm. You have a quick drink. And we had a lot of social events, like presentations that involved beer and pizza. So I had the opportunity to drink all the time. And 
I started messing up right away too. That was like right in the first month. I was getting way too drunk. I would get sick. Um, I would black out. And I just didn't understand how much alcohol was too much. I thought if I wasn't drunk in the moment, then I was good to have another one. Yeah, Joe, I want to comment on a couple things there. Uh, I don't want to say unfortunately, but uh, you are correct. In in an American collegiate setting, and especially in graduate school, you are probably the only one that is not drinking. It's it's contemporaneous. It's hand in hand, right? I don't say good, bad. It it just is what it is. And what you said when you had your first drink resonated with me and a lot of listeners. And I think this is part of our dopamine receptors of how alcoholics are wired. It's not one thing. It's a, it's a multifaceted thing of how we fall into addiction. But I think we experience our first drink differently. And you said, oh, I get it. This now makes sense. And like how you said, when I first got my buzz on, I like that. Uh, it made sense. I remember being in seventh grade. We had shoulder tapped. And I had already thrown up. We were in my buddy's basement and my right arm was leaning against a fiery hot furnace pipe and it was being burned. And I looked at my right arm and I go, oh my God, I feel no pain. I, I am greater than man. And I, same thing with you was like, oh, I get it. This is it. And the next day I had this huge burn mark on my arm and I looked at it again. I was like, yeah, didn't feel a thing. Right. So, so I understand what you're saying there. And then I, I want to clarify, did you say within one month of you starting to drink, you already, you started messing up? I think you said you you already saw repercussions. Yeah, it was really quick. Um, again, unfortunately, I, cause I had so much opportunity and there were so many parties, I was drinking often and it seemed like everybody drank like me, but they actually didn't they would stop eventually <laughs> or some of them wouldn't, but they would just get kind of sloppy. But I was the one that was getting sick. And every time I got sick that first year, it was always in public, always in a public place, like in the street or in a parking lot. It was so embarrassing. And that's also the time I met my husband. So like one month into drinking, consequences are beginning to appear. And then I meet my husband. So he witnessed everything. Um, and it was rough. And I really thought that what was happening to me was normal. I thought that it happened to everybody. So I didn't really worry about it for a bit. Sure. When you say a bit, how long was that? It took two years for me to start worrying about my drinking. Um, so by the end of that school year, you're what, like was, 24 right now, 25 around there. I guess grad school. I was, 23. I was 22, 22. Okay. Yeah. I was, uh, 22 and 23 at the end of the year. So I was a daily drinker by the end of that first year of drinking. Okay. So end of the first year of drinking, you're a daily yeah. drinker. And I think you said earlier is you think you drink just like everybody else. And that's the benchmark we hear so many times on this podcast. I mean, I think even people choose industries like restaurant workers because, yeah. oh, I drink like everybody else. Unconsciously, we make these these decisions to be, surround ourselves with people that drink like us. So one year of drinking every single day, repercussions are showing up. Um, what are those? What are those external factors? Um, humiliation was the big one for me. And that was happening a lot. And eventually what would start to happen, the more like I built a relationship with my husband is drunk fueled fights with mm. him. 
over literally nothing, but it felt like a lot in the moment. Um, I also wasn't doing my best in school because I was drinking all the time. So those were the main ones, but humiliation was probably the number one. Gotcha. And listeners, sometimes it may seem our projects, what we do are out to vilify or or, or almost to cast the light of a villain with alcohol, but that's not true. Al- alcohol was phenomenal for me. I'm thankful for the road, the pathway it took me. Do you think you would have met your husband with that alcohol? No, even though it sucks to be a problem drinker and have suffered all of that suffering, I feel like if I had never went to that school, I would have never met my husband. And if I had never went to that school, I never would have started drinking like that. So, yeah, I I had to meet him that way. Yeah, I just want to put the framework for myself. Sometimes when I look back, it's I'm very thankful for the journey that alcohol has put me on. Um, so I just was curious about that. So what happens after this first year uh, of drinking? Uh, I left the grad program. It wasn't the right fit for me. It was a PhD program. It was It was very high stress. And then I decided to start teaching. So I switched my career out of science and I started teaching. And I learned in grad school that when you are stressed out, you drink and then your stress is better. And teaching is very high stress. I was stressed every day. I was very underpaid, which a lot of teachers are, but I was like extra underpaid because I didn't have uh, licensure. So I had to work at a private school so they could pay me less. And I just drank every day to deal with it. Um, and that year really accelerated my drinking a lot because I switched to vodka actually, which um, it seemed like a great idea at the time, but uh, my husband was still a graduate student and I was a low paid teacher so my yellowtail wine that I was buying every day was becoming too expensive. And if you're not familiar of that wine, anyone who's listening, that's like $10 a bottle It's it's or less. I think it's like eight or nine, actually. It's really cheap. I so think it's a Shiraz. Am I correct on that? There's all different flavors and they're all gross. Okay. But they're I've heard of yellowtail. Very, yeah. very, very cheap. And they come in the big 1.5 liter bottles. So my husband proposed that maybe I should switch to vodka to save some money. Yikes. Yeah. Usually I hear people going the other way. (laughs) Yeah. No more hard alcohol. This is getting out of control. And you went to vodka. How'd that go? Uh, My tolerance increased very quickly. I started drinking more because I was a fast drinker. So I would drink the vodka just as quickly as I was drinking my wine. So I got really drunk. And then I started having more Um, and I realized like, wow, I'm drinking a lot of alcohol. Like I was blacking out a lot, um, getting wicked drunk multiple nights a week. And then I would go teach the next day with a horrible hangover. And I was like, this is too much alcohol. You need to drink less. That was the thought. You should just try to moderate. So Joe, what are you 24, 25 at this time? Yeah. 24. Okay. And then you're 33 right now. It sounds like you quit drinking 28, 29. I mean, there were, there was four more years of this, Yeah. but at this moment when you're, you're drinking a lot, you're blacking out with the vodka switching from yellowtail to vodka. Um, 
you know, was there that voice inside that's like, hey, Jill, this is getting out of control. Uh, we're not drinking like other people. We need to cut back. Did you go back from vodka to yellowtail? Did you try to put rules into place? What was that? What did that look like? Yeah, I still didn't realize that I was drinking differently. It would take some more time before I realized that. I still thought everybody drank like me at this point. Do you think that's um, part of the insidious component of alcohol addiction are the blinders? Why do you think that you weren't able to see you were you were drinking more than other people? And I was no different than you. Yeah. You know, that's a really good question. And I think it's it's so freaky because even when I quit, I still like fully didn't get it. And it took me going to social events and actually observing people to realize like, wow, no one drank the way that I did. And I thought all of these people were doing exactly what I was doing. I think it's because we're like the first ones drunk. So we just don't really know what's going on fully. We're not, we're not forming complete memories of it. And we just think everyone is with us and they're really not. We're the first people. We're the first ones to do it. And I think we want to believe that everyone is just like us so that we can stay on our path. Yeah, actually, there's some logic to that. I know me personally, we'd meet at the bar and I'd already be five or six drinks deep, yep. <laughs> right? So I probably <laughs> was the first one who got my buzz on for sure. Um, and I also think it's it, there's some deep unconscious patterns or almost deep unconscious boundaries that we set up to make sure that we can keep drinking. All right, Jill. So fill us in on the time you know before you quit drinking. It sounds like you're drinking a lot of vodka. You're blacking out. You know what does that three to four period look like uh, before you're sober? Yeah. So once I decided that I should try to moderate, I made a bunch of rules, like you were saying, and I tried to not drink during the week or drink a certain amount and never any more than that. I tried to count drinks. Uh, I think all the stuff that most people do, I tried to set a limit for the week. Like I'm only going to, my limit was always, I'm only going to have 30 drinks a week. And if I can. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh out loud as well. I, I get it. Right. But I mean, you can laugh from an outsider listening in like, you know, I just, I'm going to take it easy tonight and just have 20 Coors Lights. It's like, what? <laughs> I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if there's multiple rules being put in place, that means the first one didn't work. The second, third, and fourth didn't work. Am I right? None of them worked. And it was so bad. And I just kept trying and trying. I would start most days by researching, how do you moderate your drinking? How do you stop drinking once you start? And I really thought that I could figure it out. I thought that it was just some perfect strategy I had to learn or some method. And if I could just figure out what that was, I'd be fine. And I kept saying, like, it's not like I'm an alcoholic. I didn't lose my job. I have an apartment. I I am married. All of these, like, I have whatever degree. And I use that. I don't drink in the morning except on the weekend, but brunch doesn't count as the morning, even though it is in the morning. So I had all of these rules and all of these excuses and justifications. And also no one wanted me to quit. And that Ooh, made it really hard. That's a tough one. Yeah. Nobody was saying, hey, I think you need to back off or like, whoa, you drank a lot last night. Nobody was saying any of that. They wanted to drink and party with me. 
And when I would bring up my drinking to people, I'd get the, you're not that bad. Like you're fine. You know, you just like to have fun or, or um, my husband would say, it's not your drinking. It's not the amount of drinking. That's the problem. Even though the amount was like a lot, it's how much you hate yourself after. If you could just stop doing that, it wouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. And I had all of these people that were, were basically, um, I don't want to use the word enabling, but they were telling me that I was fine. And I allowed that to convince me to keep trying to moderate. Yeah. Those people are not villains. They just don't know the whole story. And before we go on with your story, Jill, do you have any theories or ideas of why this ramped up so fast for you and not for other people? Yeah, a few. So I don't see drinking or problematic drinking as something that happens to people that are weak or people that are losers um, or people that you know, have a ton of trauma. I see it as a collection of risk factors that just add up over time and also opportunity. Like I didn't start drinking in high school because I had no opportunity. If I had, or if I had been friends with people that were into drugs, probably would have tried some drugs. I just didn't have the opportunity. So I think it's both. And I think the risk factors are not having any coping skills, not being able to deal with your emotions, having really intense emotions. Obviously, trauma is one. Genetics are another, how you process alcohol, how your brain um, recognizes alcohol and how it feels for you. Alcohol feels more pleasurable for some people than others. Some people get stronger hangovers than others. So there's a lot that goes into it. I think for me, I had no coping skills at all. I was extremely overwhelmed all the time. I was like feeling alone. I had really low self-esteem and I was taught on the outside that drinking is just what adults do when they have problems. So it just made sense to me. I also had a husband who grew up watching heavy drinking. So he thought it was completely normal. So he thought what I was doing was normal. And like you said, he's it's not that they're villains. He really thought what I was doing was normal. And so all of these things came together to just make it really easy for me to drink every day. And when you drink every single day, eventually you're going to struggle. And there's also um, this phenomenon called telescoping that I think happened to me. And it's when someone progresses very rapidly through the stages to addiction. Some people, they'll drink pretty normally or moderately for like 20 years before anything starts to happen. And other people like me, like a month in, I'm already starting to have problems with control. So telescoping, um, it can happen because of mental health struggles like depression and anxiety, genetics. Women are just more vulnerable in general to alcohol than men, things like that. And once you progress that rapidly, like you don't even know what happened. Like two years in, I'm already like blacking out multiple times a week. Like I remember when the Tomb Raider game came out, the new 
reboot where she was like surviving on this island, I was so excited to play it and I kept blacking out and I'd boot up the game the next night and I'm like, what am I doing? What is happening? And I had to keep restarting this game because I kept blacking out while I was playing it. And I just didn't even realize that that was abnormal. So I think that there are a lot of contributing factors and some of those like no coping skills we can eventually work on in sobriety, which is like my main purpose in my sobriety. Yeah, Jill, that's quite the introspection there. And I I was so fascinated, still am, of the why behind we drink. Is it genetic? Is it wiring? And, and it's not one thing. It's probably more like 150 things, if not more. But at the end of the day, it's, it still doesn't matter. Here we are. We have to deal with this issue. So after those rules of moderation, they just didn't pan out. Um, what happened? Things kept getting worse for me. I've always struggled with depression and alcohol made my depression a lot worse. And I would start to blame other things like it's this person's fault or this job's fault. And then I would say it's tequila. Tequila makes me depressed. I just can't drink that. Back to vodka. And that it's so stupid, right? It's all alcohol. It's all the same. And I would make these excuses until I couldn't anymore. My excuses eventually ran out. And I so I quit drinking when I was 29. And when I was 28, that's when things started getting really bad. Um, I developed anxiety for the first time in my life. And it used to keep me up multiple nights a week. Um, I would get drunk and then I'd jolt awake at three o'clock in the morning and the room would zoom out and I'd feel like jittery and weird and I couldn't calm down. And then the shame would come in. It's like, you said you were going to have two drinks, but then you had six. Why do you always do this to yourself? You are such a freaking loser. You're weak. You're a bad person. Um, everybody hates you. Like, just the nastiest things. At and 3 a.m. in the morning. 3 a.m. Yep. And I would force myself to stay awake thinking about how much of a loser I was for not mm. moderating. And I would keep myself awake until the sun came up. So probably about three hours of doing that, like three, maybe four nights a week. So I was very tired. Um, my husband would stay up with me too. He'd try to comfort me. Yeah. So he was also very tired. Um, and then those thoughts became suicidal thoughts. And then that was when the excuses started to fall away and I started to get really scared. And I realized like, you could do something about this someday. And I thought like, okay, I'll take a break. I'll, I'm not gonna drink for 90 days. And then not to see how sobriety is, but because it's just my tolerance is too high. You know, it's just a bad habit of doing it every day. If I can just not do it for 90 days, my tolerance will be reset and therefore I will be cured. That was the purpose of this challenge. I had no interest in sobriety at all. Did you make 90 days? I did. Well, okay. Nice job. Yeah. I did. I was With highly motivated. <laughs> Sure, to get rid of this you know, habit, your tolerance is, is too high. I, I understand that thinking. During those 90 days, did you have some revelations going, oh, wait a second, this is a, this is a big deal. 
I did. Um, around 60 days. So when I quit for the 90, I stopped feeling suicidal and I stopped feeling anxious and I stopped waking up at three o'clock in the morning, like instantly. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And But at the same time, I was extremely emotional and very, very angry. And I had no patience for anybody's crap. And it just seemed like everybody wanted to give me crap every day. Um, so I was very angry. I would flip out over nothing, extremely emotional. And this was because I was doing it alone. I was not going to therapy. I was not going to meetings. I wasn't in any kind of community. I didn't even know sober Instagram existed. I was. I didn't know podcasts existed. Nothing. Um, and around day 60 was when I started feeling a lot better. And I realized like, oh my God, if I don't drink, I'm not going to feel suicidal. That's it. That's insane. I don't have to feel that way if I don't drink. And naturally I got a tattoo to signify. So I got this tattoo to signify that like, I don't have to feel suicidal anymore. I'm seeing birds flying right there. Out of Listeners, a semicolon. Okay. Gotcha. And another way to say that, let me flip it because I've gone through this is, you know, if I don't drink, I'm not suicidal. But the the flip that is if, if I'm sober, the thread to the universe is not cut or my thread to the universe is more intact, right? If I'm drinking, it's like adios, right? And I'm sober. Uh, I want to live. I want to be on this planet, right? Does that make sense? That's beautiful. Kind of. I love that. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep going, Jill. Um, so I got the tattoo. I understood the connection, which I think was critical. If I didn't have that revelation, who knows? Um, but I needed to understand the effects of my drinking. I thought it was a me thing. I thought that I was suicidal and I was anxious and I was a loser and all this stuff. And then I realized like, no, I'm actually not. This is the influence of alcohol on my brain that is making these feelings go crazy. And on day 90, I felt really proud. And day 91 happened to be my 29th birthday, which was justification for why I must be cured because I didn't even plan the challenge. I did it spontaneously because I was suffering. So if 91 is my birthday, I must be cured. I must be on the right path. The universe is sending me a sign that I can drink. And I had a glass of wine for my birthday. And it was so amazing. I had to hold back the tears, which should have been a sign. You shouldn't feel that way about consuming a liquid. Um, and I got way too drunk on my birthday. And I had shame and regret. And I drank for five more months. I completely ruined a vacation um, with just humiliating myself the entire time. We went on a cruise and I thought, I'll just drink how I want on this vacation. And then I'll go back to trying to moderate. But how I wanted was all day and all night. Basically, every moment I'm awake was how I actually wanted to do it. So that resulted in a ton of humiliation. And 
then I saw my consequences come back and they didn't come back slowly either. They came back really fast. The anxiety, the 3 a.m.s, the suicidal thoughts, all of it. And I had this one thing that I was holding on to. I said, as long as I don't have to miss work because of my drinking, then I'm fine. And then I started having to miss work because I was not sleeping because I wouldn't let myself sleep. And then I would be so hungover. And that really messed with me. And that helped me um, accept that I had to let it go. And then it was the same exact thing as the 90 days. I just felt scared that I was going to do something when I felt suicidal. And I realized that I just can't do it ever again. Gotcha. So on November 9th, 2019, it was more of a realization. You have to let this go. You're seeing it more clearly. The alcohol is leading to the suicidal ideations, anxiety, the waking up at 3 a.m. And it sounds like you let it go, but you had to come to grips with that. Yeah, I had to really understand that I could never be cured, that I could never change the way I drank. And having that experience where I quit and I saw my life got a lot better. And then I went back to drinking and my life went exactly the same way it was before. Having that experience and having it be a long break of 90 days really proved to me that this is just how I drink. That's it. And I tried to moderate for five years and I just can't. And I accepted it. And then I felt scared, obviously, because it's scary in the beginning. What's everyone going to think of me? How am I even going to live without my favorite thing, my best friend? But I also felt peace. I felt like, like this is finally over. I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to suffer like this. I felt a lot of peace. Let's double down on that for, actually, I'm going to go a different direction. The first time you said you were doing it alone, right? And the term in this world is the dry drunk. We, we, we've heard that before. The second time, um, did that change? Did you go to meetings? What, what happened there? The second time I still did it alone, okay. uh, which is why I tell people, please don't do that. Um, I did it alone because you know what? I was different from other people. And I didn't need to go to meetings or do anything. That was why I did alone. So silly. And I had the same like intense emotions, really just like a ton of anger. And then when the world shut down and we all got sent home, I started getting support. So it took me a few months. But then when I didn't have to go to work from nine to five, I was like, now I can go to therapy and I don't have to like awkwardly leave work at the same time early every week and everyone's going to know. So I started doing therapy and then I um, discovered more podcasts and got a community and met some people. And so it started from there, but I was very resistant in the beginning still. Gotcha. Now, how did Sober Power get started? Um, so when I when I quit, I wanted to know, like, was this actually my fault? Was everything mean that I ever said about myself true? Was I really a weak-willed loser with no self-control? And I started just investigating. I just wanted to understand why did this happen to me? Why can my husband drink a bunch of drinks and then stop and switch to water? Um, why can everybody around me, it seems, drink and not feel suicidal afterwards? And I started learning about it every night and it took up all the free time I got in the beginning. 
And I learned like why I had that 3 a.m. anxiety and why I felt extra depressed. And it wasn't just because tequila. (laughs) And the more I learned, the easier it was for me to let go of shame. And eventually I just wanted to share the science with other people. So I started my podcast to talk about that with others because I thought maybe it would help them accept like it's not a them thing. It's an alcohol thing. Oh, I love that. It's not a them thing. It's it's an alcohol thing. Can you comment that comment on that a little more? Yeah, like we we blame ourselves and we think that there's something wrong with us and it's our fault. But it's not our fault. It's just an unfortunate collection of risk factors. It's the way that your body processes alcohol. It's how pleasurable it feels in your brain. Alcohol changes the brain to reinforce more drinking. Some people are more more vulnerable to those changes than others. And it's just that. It's not like your quality as a person. It's not how good or bad you are, how strong or weak you are. Um, Some things obviously contribute like coping skills, which is something that we have power over. But I don't see this anymore as like, I suck. This is my fault. I'm a bad person. That's why this happened to me and not someone else. Jill, I track with that. I think there's 101 risk factors that come into play here. And a couple other things is most anthropologists agree that addiction did not exist in pre-modern times. That is a sweeping statement, my goodness. And part of that is Dr. Gabra Mate's book, uh, The Myth of Normal. The way we are living is promoting these conditions of unrest. And addiction is just one of them. Mental health, mental health anxiety, uh, depression, all that stuff is on the rise. And the second part is the the technologies around alcohol. So the distillation technology was not around a couple hundred years ago. We could not get alcohol to 80 proof, 90 proof, 100 proof. Wine used to be about 6%. Beer was around like the Utah mark, 2, 2.3, 3%. Um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, you know, alcohol is not new to humanity. We've been drinking it for 13, 14, 15,000 years. It, it keeps showing up later in, in the in the record books. But, you know, with these changes, our culture has never been more fast paced and stress is the result of that. And we have more disease. The DSM, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual is growing by 30 to 40, 50 pages each new edition, right? These are all conditions of unrest. So the fast paced environment coupled with the new technologies of like everything is super powered. Everything's a tall boy with high alcohol contents. Like where... Where do you see this going? I have my views and there's, it can't keep going on forever, right? Um, if 10% of the population has an AUD, alcohol use disorder now, like that's going to bump up to 15 to 20. Society, and I think we are reaching this moment where we have to deal with this as a society, not just those who struggle with addiction in a corner or a pocket of the world. What's your thoughts on that? I'm so glad that you brought that up because we we look at TV when it's like historical fiction and they're just drinking all day. So we think it's normal, but their alcohol was so much weaker than what we are drinking. You couldn't drink our strength alcohol all day long. So that is a huge factor, just the percentage of alcohol. But I think that more people are waking up to the negative effects. I think that Fortunately, a lot of celebrities are getting sober and they're sharing about it, which is raising awareness. And most people don't think celebrities are losers. Like they could maybe pass us off. Oh, they're just like these loser alcoholics who are trying to get everybody to be sober. But then you look at 
you know, Drew Barrymore and Dax Shepard and people don't think that they're losers. So I feel like that is disrupting um, the stigma a bit. And then non-alcoholic drinks are becoming so cool. And I saw a statistic recently that the non-alcoholic drink industry is growing like faster than the alcohol industry or something like that. And that's because it's so cool. And I remember when James Bond was endorsing Heineken Zero. And so I think that we're slowly changing the narrative. But even though the statistic is 10% of the population, it's probably higher because there's a lot of people that struggle in silence that don't want anybody to know. Or there's a lot of people who are right on the line where it's they're not drinking, um, you know, quote, normally, and they're not like in horrible addiction, but it's still not good. And they're the people who say like, oh, it's not that bad. It's not bad. I can still control it, whatever. I think there's a ton of those people and we don't really know how many. Jill, at the time of this recording, you're coming up on four years, alcohol-free, incredible, nice job. Um, before we hit the rapid fire round, let us know, you know, how are you doing it right now? Do you go to AA? What programs, what literature, what podcast, you know, what does your program look like? Um, so I still see my same therapist that I started with when I was a couple months sober. And I really look forward to therapy every week. She helps me just learn so much about myself. And it's really helpful to make those connections and understand why I think and behave and why I'm triggered over certain things. When I first quit, I started with podcasts because I didn't really know what was out there besides AA. So I started listening to the Happy Sober podcast by Craig Beck and your podcast. And those were the two that I started with. Um, and then I started researching addiction on my own. That's always been a huge part of my recovery and making friends that are sober. I think building up positive friendships where I know that they care about me and I care about them and feeling understood by those friends is critical for me. Uh, my husband's just like a regular guy. You know, he doesn't, he can have half a beer and make that choice for himself. And he tries to get it, but he doesn't fully get it. So having my sober friends is so helpful for when I'm triggered to not feel like misunderstood or alone. And Jill, if listeners want to find your podcast, the Sober Powered Podcast, where can they find that? Do you have Instagram? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. Uh, you can just search Sober Powered wherever you're looking and you'll probably find me there. That's Sober Powered with ED, right? Yep. Powered. Yeah. I love it. Well, Jill, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 10 to 15 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Ready. What's the one thing you've learned about yourself in sobriety? Uh, that I am resilient and I'm not a bad person. Best sober moment. Ooh, um, when I got offered the professor position. Yeah. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Uh, definitely N.A. beers. Athletic, I would say. Everybody loves athletic. Yeah. If you could play any instrument, what would you play? Electric guitar. Ooh. Metal. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What has sobriety made possible for you? Uh, Self-esteem. Gotcha. What's your favorite pizza? Plain. 
just plain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Boring. What is your favorite sobriety quote? Okay. Um, addiction is giving up everything for one thing, and recovery is giving up one thing for everything. Yeah. Advice to your younger self. Uh, go to therapy. What are your thoughts Please on relapse? Please go to therapy. Um, I think that relapse is a normal part of the process for most people. And I think it comes with a lot of shame, but it's a learning experience and it's a data point. It doesn't mean that you suck. This is coming out a couple weeks before Christmas. Advice for the holidays. You don't have to go to everything. If you are worried that you're going to drink or that you can't stay sober, don't go. You're not going to ruin anyone's time by not being there. What's the point of life? I think to feel proud of yourself. What is the go-to tool to get past a craving? Um, walking. Rage walking. Rage walking while imagining <laughs> playing metal on an electric guitar. Love it. Very briskly. <laughs> briskly. Gotcha. Jill, before we go, give listeners your own customized you might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you are trying to moderate because uh, if you can moderate, you don't have to try. There are so many stop gaps or revealing information before we hit that sobriety date. If you can't moderate, I mean, let's back it up even more. If you think you start questioning you have a problem with alcohol, boom, there's your answer. If you break one moderation rule, boom, there's your answer. If you're trying to moderate with 30 drinks per week or even maybe <laughs> 20 drinks a day, Boom, there you go. If you start Googling sobriety podcasts, if you start Googling, how do I moderate? Boom, there you go. But again, the unconscious blinders, ah, that's a rough part of any addiction, alcohol addiction included. Jill, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I've wanted to connect with you um, on this platform, have you on the podcast for a long time. Thank you for your time. I'm sure we'll be in touch in the future. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Stand firm in your decision not to drink poison. Again, it's ludicrous that alcohol is a potent and addictive drug that we have to justify why we are not consuming. When you decline a drink, say it with confidence and authority. You don't have to yell it, but your tone should include the fact that you're choosing wholeness and life over the molecule alcohol. Now let's role play two scenarios for a second. Hey, do you want a drink? Oh, no, I'm good. I'm on a medication that says I shouldn't drink. Here's the second one. Hey, do you want a drink? No, thank you. I don't drink. Now hit your 15 second back button if you want to hear that again. Of course, I say two different things in the response, but one of them is almost faltering. It's an excuse. Oh, I'm on medication, right? We're justifying why we're not drinking poison. But the second one, no, thank you. I don't drink. Yes, there are six words there, but it's mostly the tone or vibration, which does contain information, which says much more. When you are firm on your choice, then you give others permission to do the same. Recovery Elevator, I love you guys. And go big, because eventually we'll all go home. Mm -hmm.